Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hey everybody, it's your imperialist uh, Iron Town bruiser Holden McNeely who wants to you know, cut down the forests and uh, really build up my own civilization. Yeah, that's what I am, see? And I am your forest spirit wizard. <laughs> Kill him! Oh, I just want to give you kisses. Lop, lop, lop off his stupid head and let's build a big old fortress for us civilians who are prostitutes and lepers. I'll kill you, but I'll be real nice about it. It's very fucked up. <laughs> Look at my person face. <laughs> that's right. Today we're doing our episode on Princess Mononoke. I feel like actually that's not a that's right statement. We got real weird real fast yeah, with that opening. That was a weird opening. But it is a weird, it's a, it's a, it's a strange and wonderful film. Absolutely a delight. I'm so glad we're doing this episode. Um, there were a few to choose from. I really do want to do Grave of the Fireflies soon, too, which I didn't even realize. Wasn't it being made at the same time as this? Or was it a different No, no, movie? no. It was after. It was someone. It was being made at the same time as another, like, epic, amazing it was, it was, movie. Maybe it was Spirited Away. No, no, no. It was a, um, it was a double feature with Totoro. Oh, that's what it was. Which was super fucked up if you consider yeah. what happens in both those movies. A hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, it, but but this really is um, p- quite possibly Miyazaki's greatest masterpiece. I'm sure you could argue for other films, but I really do I'll feel... argue that you're wrong if, <laughs> if you do. <laughs> yeah, you feel that this is his greatest work, his masterwork? I feel like, yeah, this really is uh, truly amazing. Uh, Spirited Away, I know, yes, has that's what I would maybe more argue. lavish animation. Yeah. But it also has this level of kind of dream logic to it. And as a movie. It's made for, you know, like 10 year olds too, right? So I think maybe this this maybe deals with more, some more mature and therefore complex themes about human nature. Not only that, but it also follows a more clear, like classic movie plot line. Like, you know, there's, there's a, there's a journey. There's an, each action leads to another action. Uh, Whereas like, yeah, other Miyazaki movies will kind of devolve into like kind of bouts of dream dreamishness right whereas even though it's very muddled and you know uh there's still protagonists antagonists goals and and rising action falling action all the movie shit (laughs) movie oh god you know what i love i love a rising action to a climax followed by a denouement Mm, yeah that's entertainment (laughs) 
Okay, so how about we just how about we dive right in? And I know we've done an episode on Miyazaki already, but I do want to give a a, a a a chunky little background, essentially to his career leading up to the making of this film, as I do think it helps and feeds in, and it will be brief-ish. But mm-hmm. we should talk about it, right? We yeah, should yeah. talk about it. Uh, Hayao Miyazaki was born in the caves behind his house, uh, the second of four siblings in Bunkyo, Tokyo, to a father who was director of a company that made rudders for fighter planes in World War II. And this is very important. This is like every great uh, anime uh, creator that grew up around this time. Um, the World, World War II had a massive impact on his life and would definitely be very impactful when it came to um, the, his films, even Princess Mononoke. With his family, he had to evacuate his home and move a couple of times due to the bombings, which um, very, very much stayed with him throughout his life. The, the image of these, you know, this this modern technology for the time, destroying uh, the area around him definitely is something we see in Mononoke. Also, uh, at a very early age, he was wanting to be a manga artist, uh, and he found he couldn't draw people, so he stuck to planes, tanks, and battleships. I remember discussing that in our episode. Uh, He uh, destroyed a lot of his early work, by the way, feeling it was bad form, as he highly copied his influences, such as Osamu Tetsuka, who did uh, Astro Boy, and Princess Knight, which I recently learned is one of the original Magical Girl Um Things because uh, 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 properties because uh, that feeds into our live show we've been preparing for. If you're hearing this right when it came out, uh, then we will have done the live show. I hope we didn't fuck it up. And whoever stole my phone, give it back. <laughs> the Bell House show on uh, 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 on Sunday. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm thinking about it like that. When <laughs> listeners hear this episode, we will have done that crazy ass show that I'm so nervous about. Let me just say, just uh, I apologize. I did not realize my fly was down. Again, I'm covering bases. <laughs> give me back my phone. I'm oh sorry you all saw my dick. Oh, my God. Um, so, anyways, uh, he became fascinated with animation after seeing Panda and the Magic Serpent, the first anime feature film released in 1958, during which he fell in love, quote-unquote, with the film's heroine and uh, fe- strong female characters. That was one of the first ones. It was it was actually lauded for having such a good representation of a female character, that film in particular. But he uh, would go on, especially in Mononoke, to just bring us these really... Really strong, amazing female characters. Nausicaa, Kiki's Delivery Service. Sure, like oh, some yeah. of his great, yeah, when, arguably his greatest work uh, is behind a heroine that you know uh, the audience like cares for, and you know, uh, obviously it then like mutates into waifu shit, and that's where like we get fucking modern day dead eyed chain smoking <laughs> anime was a mistake. <laughs> Miyazaki, who I love, I love this fucking, I love modern Miyazaki. This burnt out guy's like. Everything's soulless is trash. Everything's trash. I'm sorry. It's so funny. I will get to this later, but he strongly identifies with the main character of Princess Mononoke because he's so melancholic. He said, he, I'll get to the quote later, but he says something about it. It's like a melancholy, a person full of melancholy that has a destiny mm-hmm. to fulfill, which is, and he feels that way himself, which I can totally see. He's just like under the grind of being this great artist, you know, and everyone needing him to continue to make work. Okay, but 
back to this. He started out at Toei Animation after graduating college. Ah, Toei Animation, the Hanna-Barbera of, no, no. <laughs> of animation studios for like people to immediately start out as creating, just pumping out tons of work and then you move Toei on to Toei is stuff. a very interesting studio because uh, they were for a while the Disney of Japan. Mm. Uh, producing these blockbuster hits that were inspiring artists. They'd come work for them, only to discover that, like, oh, no, 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 you're uh, producing robot fighter Genji, and also we're out, and, uh, like, the B-team, we're outsourcing you to make Inspector Gadget B-sides. And he started out, as many animators do, as an in-between artist, which, of course, is when you're you're essentially assisting the animator by creating the panels right in between. I always have to, like, re-look up what this is, but you're... Uh, the key animation is done by higher higher skill level animators, people that have proven themselves, uh, who kind of have the eye for action and movement and acting. So uh, when you think of like how storyboards are, are made, you know, each pose is done. And then in order to save the talented, you know, the, the higher ranking person's time to move on to other scenes, the individual frames in between those poses are given to lower grade animators. But in, in, in high production value uh, productions, Wow, that was a terrible sentence. <laughs> we are both just fried. We are so fried. It's not fair. If you're listening, if Ghibli fans, if you're listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't apologize. Pretend is- like no, no, that's the first uh, sign of weakness. Uh, um, yada yada yada. <laughs> it's a lower, it's a lower paying job. It's a lower tier in the animation pipeline. Well, he quickly became the chief secretary of Toei's labor union after Hell being, yeah. After being leader of a labor dispute shortly after joining the company. So also showing that he's willing to fight for the people, essentially. What do we want? Fresh pencils. <laughs> when do we want it? I don't know. Maybe next week. <laughs> Shut up and get back to work. <laughs> Uh, he worked on several projects at Toei, including writing and illustrating entire manga miniseries, uh, People of the Desert, and providing key animation for films such as The Wonderful World of Puss in Boots. Also, you notice around this time, when it comes to anime, a lot of it is adaptations of Western fairy tales, things like that, as opposed to wholly original works. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the the gift that Miyazaki really brought, I think, to uh, in reverse to that brought to the Western world um, in the sense of Princess Mononoke is this amazing expression of Japanese culture that's actually mm. multiple different groups from different time periods actually being pushed together and interact with each other. We will get to that. Ironically enough, it was supposed to be his big like, that's right, world, we're doing global movies. And it is incredibly Japanese. Yes, very, very much so. But um, that's what makes it feel wholly unique and fascinating and wondrous and um, why I think so many people love it. So he gets hired at APRO, where he directed or co-directed with creative partner Isao Takahata. um, As key to Ghibli's success mm -hmm. as Miyazaki. Yes, who did Grave of the Fireflies. I initially actually was like wanting to do that um, for this week's episode, and Jay convinced me to do Princess Mononoke. And Jake, I just want to thank you, dude, because I don't think I could go there this week (laughs) with Grave. Grave of the Fireflies is one of the most upsetting I call it like the Dear Zachary of anime. It Mm -hmm. is just the most unbelievably, profoundly upsetting, but yet important, so important for, I think, every person, everybody to watch, especially Americans, need to see that film, I feel like. You know what I mean? I wanted to do Ponyo, man. (laughs) It's about like a fish girl who loves ham. (laughs) 
fucking spooked me on a profound level. We'll get to Podio. We'll get to Podio. Um, so he also did 23 episodes of Lupin the Third Part One, among several other projects at APRO. He leaves APRO to work on uh, at Nippon Animation in the mid-70s and left Nippon after a few projects. And during the production of Anne of Green Gables, the TV series, he then moves on. So right, obviously, he's hopping. He's, pop- mm-hmm. he's popping around, and he's probably getting into r- issues with these different uh, groups and getting frustrated with the way that things are being run at these different organizations well, it's, it's it's a very unfortunate uh uh it's almost a cursed pa- uh, paradox where if you have the drive to be an animator it means that you want literal godlike control over how a story is yes you li- each you want to control each frame you're, of a movie you're creating a world right. a full world out of your brain through your hand and yet, the market for animation is almost exclusively tilted for idiot children and cheap TV shows. <laughs> That's the other thing that, you know, I, I forget about because of how much the, the landscape has changed t- mm-hmm. today. But yeah, back in the day, and that's why initial big anime hits were like super edgy back in the day too is because it was like yeah this isn't a cartoon this is for adults that's why you've got this lady has like spikes coming out of her tits and fucking you know vampire nightmare takeshi (laughs) yeah right it was like they they had to go all the way in the farthest direction of mature adult content Mm -hmm. and and that's why um even though princess minoke is is not skimpy on its violence it still feels like a bit more progressive in the sense of what, like, okay, we've gotten over the fact that, like, we can show you, you know, we can make people's heads explode and that's edgy and cool. Now let's tell a story, you know, with real depth and meaning, right? And I do feel like um, I forgot that animation was not accepted in any on any level as an adult thing back when we were young and until these films started coming out, right? For the most part, I mean, yeah. you had Fritz the Cat. You had there's always going to be outsider artists, cool that world go for that. or whatever. I don't know, but even even in Japan, there were like I'm sure whoever the Arkham of Yokohama right. was, but widely accepted and also like f- film of the year level, mm-hmm. you know, properties and things coming out for adults. That really was it, right. You're right. There were underground hits and stuff like, whoa, look at this dirty cartoon. But it wasn't like on the level of Roger Ebert being like, this is one of the most profoundly amazing films of the You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, he goes to TMS Entertainment's telecom animation uh, film, which is the name of TMS Entertainment's subsidiary. Tokyo movie Shinsa. Uh, yes, their, their subsidiary for uh, anime. And he directs his first feature, The Castle of Cagliostro. Amazing. Which movie. is a Lupin the Third film that I need to see. I, ha- I need to get, really get on Lupin. Um, if you go in with like medium expectations, you'll get blown away. I'm not going to tell you it's the best thing ever. Right. You know, it is showing its age a little bit. Right. But in terms of just... If you can get past like the the limitations of you know the anime process, uh, it is charming as fuck. Get uh, uh Wizbrew Wiz fans, get out your Wizbrew bingo sheets because I'm about to say it. We should do an episode on that. <laughs> After the Castle of Cagliostro, which was a huge hit. Gave yes. uh, Miyazaki a ton of cachet. After uh, he does this, he's weirdly put in development hell by TMS. Even though this movie's a big hit, they refused to fund any anime projects that he was pitching because they weren't already successful manga properties. He had original ideas he wanted to do. They did, however, allow him to create an original manga under the grounds 
that it can never be made into a film, which ended up being Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, about a princess of a small kingdom in post-apocalyptic Earth with a bioengineered uh, uh, ecological system who gets into a war between kingdoms during a humankind-threatening environmental disaster. Now, after he completes the series, he resigns from Telecom Animation Film in 1982, and he, he was encouraged by his contemporaries uh, to adapt... Uh, Nausicaa himself with the help uh, from them financially and whatnot and so he agreed to as long as he could direct he ends up pulling it together he releases Nausicaa in 1984 and that really put him on the map uh, as more of the auteur I think we have today because that was an original work that he created himself he was lauded for its positive portrayal of women Uh, it did well at the box office and it pushed him into a new era in his career as I just said after that he along with Isao Takahata Producer Toshio Suzuki and Tokuma Shoten founded the animation com- uh, production company Studio Geely. Geely? Ghibli? I always say Ghibli. Ghibli? I know. I just never know how to say There's, it. It's, it's like, we covered this in the old episode. It's yeah. like a specific, like, wind formation in the, <laughs> in the Algiers. Uh, because, again, he's a fucking plane nerd. <laughs> so he... <laughs> So he goes on to write and direct Laputa, uh, Castle in the Sky, My Neighbor, to- which I also need to see, My Neighbor Totoro, Kiki's Delivery Service, and Porco Rosso. These films had elements of the relationship between humanity and the environment, technology and its effect on the earth, and anti-war elements. All of these are definite elements of Princess Mononoke, which is what brings us to our main event. Okay, that that's yeah. that's our, our brief so, little Miyazaki corner um, that gets us up to the initial beginnings of his creating this grand masterpiece. So Miyazaki talks about how kind of it feels it feels almost quaint to talk about it now, but like the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the uh, wars in Czechoslovakia and Bosnia, and all this, uh, coupled with how he saw Japanese culture in the light of the economic boom, and then the lost decade was kind of hitting this very crass state in his opinion uh even things as as uh as simple as just acknowledging uh both America glossing over its crimes in World War II uh, by dropping the nuclear bombs absolutely for the love of god don't argue about it uh, yes it's very complicated i don't have an answer about that um and Japan's own reluctance to acknowledge its crimes in uh in China and in Korea and so he he had this like very profound sense of sadness and uh being able to just lightly tackle the topic of war to tackle the concept of the, the pointlessness of conflict affected him so deeply that he absolutely felt the need to make his next big movie about conflict, mm-hmm. about hatred, about war. And and what's beautiful about this movie that I will initially state here and expand on all throughout our discussion today, Jake, is that he really attempted, and you see this especially with how he treats his protagonist throughout the film, he really attempted to not have uh, any clearly defined good guy or bad guy um, and any clearly defined like person in the right or person in the wrong on either side of this nature versus technology, humanity versus nature issue, conflict. Um, and I think that's really beautiful. And I think is something that today, actually, we could really use more of, you know, a, more of a, a balancing of opinions and things like that. And, and to, to at least attempt to understand some have some perspective. Right. I <laughs> what just the idea of like uh, Akashita, like a fucking spider monster with a MAGA hat being like, hat, yeah. like no no spirit of the forest I beg, I beg of you do not put the, the child in a cage 
Please, spirit, I beg, please do not. Go, go to your home now. I'm not going to say that I low-key give you dorkly content on the on the fly at a constant rate. Oh, God, that would get us fucking all fired within a week if we posted that. <laughs> um, but Please, yeah. spirit, abortion is legal. Please. Oh, from Arkansas. All right, cut, actually, you know what? Cut his fucking head off. <laughs> No, no. People from Arkansas are delightful. <laughs> but uh, anyways, oh, oh, uh, I do I do think it speaks towards something that you just don't get a lot in films in general of this type of nature, especially though. You know, all of what I just set aside, um, I think that the fact that it's, it's a movie with a, an environmentalist message that isn't just like stop fucking the environment up and looking at it more like this is a struggle that humans have dealt with all mm-hmm. you know as they have evolved this is not something that's just clearly bad humans are bad and nature is good and i think that that on itself is like a profound no, way if anything to nature approach. is indifferent yeah Nature. Oh, nature can be very cruel, um, yeah. too, and I think we forget that sometimes as well. But I just feel like, um, but now I just get stop thinking about this mega monster. <laughs> <laughs> just, <laughs> please put that tiki torch down. <laughs> oh, great spirit of the forest, calm your rage. Put down the tiki torch, please. I do not wish to fight you. <laughs> galloping on a little deer. And then just like a wolf, giant wolf with like a gas mask on, like, <laughs> like lobby, you know what I mean? Like anti-fob wolverines. <laughs> this is what fighting does to us. I, I, I will not stop doing that Ashitaka imploring voice. What was, what was it? Ben, uh, who did the American voice? Yeah, Billy Crudup. Yeah. Billy Crudup, yeah. the whole movie is just well, and, like being real quiet he's always quiet and then just yelling platitudes i remembered the dub more fondly than rewatching it recently i was like whoa because i was like wow it has this all-star cast it's like billy uh bob Bob thorne couldn't be more like monotone and weird with like the rapidity like the pace of his like dialogue is feels so jarring like and he just feels like i don't know he just feel, it feels it sounds kind of billy bob th- phoned in yeah a little i mean bit. You, that voice should that not partic- be coming out of a zen a yeah, mercenary there's some, zen there's some emotionless about it the main character yeah it feels also weirdly monotone throughout um and just says lines you're just, but you also have to realize that this was not happening a lot like especially a cast of this caliber to voice a dubbed anime like this was not happening at this like i think you know also we got i think people got a lot better at dubbing Mm -hmm. so anyways let's go back to the very beginnings though okay because actually you know i explained some of these things about miyazaki but he was starting to work on uh princess mononoke even back in the late 70s he was drawing sketches for a film about a princess living in the woods with a beast um, at that time, and it, but it wasn't until August of 1994. Oh he, no, it's more than just a, a concept. He had and uh, what's called a uh, kind of a sto- story pages, uh, like basically crude, uh, crude storyboards to kind of like help show to executives and producers to like you know show where all the beats of the story is going to be uh, under the title Princess Mononoke. And it involved, like, a young girl trying to find her father who was, like, an Mm. errant samurai who was wronged by a uh, lord or a duke of some kind who, like, made a pact with a demon to get revenge. And she's trying to save him with the help of a uh, large furry forest spirit who kind of looked more like Totoro. 
than uh, than than any of the creatures we see in Princess Mononoke. Yeah, but it carries a lot of the same um, the same themes, which is like war and how violence corrupts someone and how the need for vengeance, you know, the cycle of violence can't be perpetuated. And uh, it, it has like a kind of pretty tragic ending. It's uh, there's like beat for beat. It's basically uh, a little girl goes on a on a journey to like stop her fucking monster dad from like laying waste to an mm. entire castle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and you can like find a translation of it online. Like people have uh, they've uncovered those pages. So it wasn't until August of 1994 that he began writing the film's plotline accompanied with its first storyboards. He wanted to portray, quote, the very beginnings of the seemingly insoluble conflict between the natural world and modern industrial civilization. This soon led to a awful writer's block for Miyazaki, who uh, ends up uh, stepping away from this. Um, he, he, part of the reason was some of these ideas he had been building up over time. He ended up actually using them in My Neighbor Totoro. He also just was looking around him and there were just a lot of societal changes that had happened in the two decades since he had began thinking about this concept. And he was having a hard time, I think, updating what he had originally worked on. Um, so he, uh, had this writer's block and he ended up sitting the project down and working on other things. So the supervising animator slash character designer Masashi Ando, uh, he did work on Spirited Away. He did Your Name. Uh, He took the early storyboards and designed characters based off of them during this time. Um, Now, the protagonist, Ashitaka, as I said, is uh, said to be uh, modeled uh, after Miyazaki. Uh, he described him as, uh, this was the quote, by the way, not a cheerful, worry-free boy, but, quote, a melancholy boy who has a fate. And he also said Ibashi, Ibashi or Iboshi? Ibashi, Uh, Lady Iboshi. uh, Iboshi is, quote, a person of the 20th century who, quote, wouldn't hesitate to kill, sacrifice, or even uh, sacrifice herself. Iboshi, also uh, leader of Iron Town, representing this industrial, Mm -hmm. you know, situation for humanity and again like i said these these are and i will get into the different um the different time periods and the different cultures he in in japan that he's basing all of these different uh characters and towns people off of so it's this weird mishmash of future and past and that's what makes it feel so weird and out of time and, and magical in that way. So anyways, uh, he he also specifically wanted to have a female ruler of Irontown. And I love this quote from him. I think it's such a cool perspective. Uh, he said, it's not that I wanted to make it modern. It's just that depicting Tatara Ba under the rule. That's Irontown, by the way, uh, uh, in J- Japanese. Under the rule of men would be boring. And if I made the boss of Tatara Ba a man, he would be a manager, not a revolutionary. If it's a woman, she becomes a revolutionary. That was, I think that's fucking rad. So anyways, uh, also during this time, character designs are being created. Miyazaki, needing inspiration, takes a trip with uh, character designer slash animator Masashi Ando to the ancient forests of Yakushima and the Kyushu Islands, as well as uh, Yakushima is also an island, by the way, and and Kyushu, those two are islands, as well as the mountains of Shirakami Sanchi, along with a group of art directors, background artists, and digital animators over the course of three days. These are incredibly lush locales. Look up images of them. It's just the forest from Mononoke. fucking beautiful. It's, It's a to B. They uh, specific scenes and specific uh, set pieces are based on individual locations that they 
found in those forests. Just, I just want to. It's. I want to go, but I'm like, I'll probably would get killed there by some sort of uh, snake or something. But man, is it not absolutely beautiful. Also, though, Miyazaki learned something very interesting while he was traveling around, which gave him so much more inspiration uh, and probably helped unclog his writer's block. He said, people on Yakushima Island didn't cut the trees. They thought that cutting trees would bring about a curse. Trees are beings that make us feel that way. I learned it when I went to Yakushima. So I think he came back not just with the environmental design ideas, but also with these inspirations for plot. He was actually influenced at the time by a piece of uh, kind of pop history that was uh, popular in Japan that kind of laid out how um, uh, Japan is this island nation where, uh, you know, we think of it as uh, having this, you know, basically people came from China over to Japan and this like cross, this cross ocean cultural like back and forth is you know that's where they got buddhism from that's where they got silk from this is like all this all these all these things are influenced by china but the uh southern islands and the native japanese people had their own unique culture yes and what differentiated them is what the pop psychology book uh said was they uh were more focused on clearing land for rice patties which is intensely like rice is super clutch for japanese culture uh the more the more native indigenous peoples of japan were more uh, obsessed with growing uh, uh, roots and tubers and like uh, and like sweet potatoes and 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 cassava and stuff like that, which is less environmentally taxing. It's 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 in theory more in tune with its surroundings because they have these superstitions about uh, cutting down trees. Mm, mm-hmm. And so uh, this is where uh, you know Miyazaki's idea of the uh, was it the Amishi people? Uh, uh, yeah, come into play where. Uh, you know, uh, basically, yeah, the Amishi were tribes that resisted rule of the Japanese emperors during the seventh to tenth centuries A.D. There's there are tribes that still exist. Well, there are people to this day that exist in Japan. Uh, there's the Ainu people. There's uh, native Kyushu Island uh, people. But the the Amishis only exist really in historical records, and mm. in there they're always like the bad guys. You they know what I mean? They also seemed like the the, mo- the more interesting and I thought cooler upon reading about them myself. They implemented a unique hit and run ho- horse archery warfare tactic, uh, and were able to fight successfully for many years against the imperial armies. It's like a Braveheart, you mm-hmm. know, situation, right? I always respect that that those people more than the people who in the fancy suits or what you know what I mean going to war um until the Japanese warriors they were fighting against adopted their tactics and started using that against them so it wasn't until they followed suit with what they were doing you know what I mean I think that is fascinating as all hell but it's it's it's, it's this and this this animator this guy who spends all day hunched over a desk and what he imagines like what true peace with nature is uh, you know, I can imagine Ashitaka crying by the side of a highway because someone uh, threw out a can of beer. <laughs> so uh, there were two other um, cultures that he was basing all of this off of. He wanted to be, quote, a symbolic never-win clash of three proto-Japanese races, the Jaman, Yamato, and Amishi. The, the Jaman is a type of Japanese prehistory from 14,000 to 300 BCE, during which Japan was inhabited by a hunter-gatherer culture rich in tools and jewelry made from bone stone shell and antler so obviously these are the 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 industrialists right essentially um then the yamato or wait wait is it the no, yamato no. no 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 these guys are a uh, hunter gatherer my yeah. bad if you want to if you want to like weird 
crib notes version of what Jomon 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 culture we'll never know. <laughs> uh, looked like. Uh, that design aesthetic, like their artifacts and archaeology, was heavily influenced in all the design choices for uh, Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild. Ah, that kind of knurled stone carving. And, and they were the initial. Uh, tribe or whatever you want to like village it's that, a big country there were lots of tribes no I'm saying the in the beginning of the film they're that first village that he le- has to leave from is that uh, the Jomon they're, no they're called the Amishi I'm, I'm saying in the movie they're called the Amishi okay. the Amishi don't really have a big archaeological record they're kind of just the default yeah. wild man bad guys in Japanese historical epics yeah. they're the bandits they're the a barbarian horde. Right, They're like right. the oh, filthy yeah, yeah, outsiders. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And by making them the hero, the people that are in tune with nature that like kind of uh, figured out the balance between modernity and nature, it's kind of a very huge subversion uh, that Miyazaki did in making them the hero. And it's the Amato are the Iron Town people, essentially, I right? I think so. The Amato were settlers of mainland Japan who strongly believed in ancestor worship and seemed to also just be. And I believe the Amishi were said to have fought against the Yamato. The Yamato were the soldiers that they ended up actually Anytime Japan consolidated power behind, like, when they weren't just arguing amongst regional warlords, it was time to fuck with tribal communities and expand and, like, get everyone under the same uh, cultural umbrella. Now, in terms of the world itself, though, it is set in the late Muromachi period. That spans from 1336 to 1573 and is marked by the rule of the Muromachior Ashikaga shoguns, which were military leaders. Uh, Zimbu- Get the fuck out of here, Emperor! <laughs> Emperor? Fuck you! Shoguns are where it's at. Zen uh, Buddhism played a central role during this time spiritually in Japan, which emphasizes rigorous self-control, meditation practice, insight into the nature of things, and the personal expression of this insight in daily life, especially for the benefit of others. Essentially, when Buddhism spread to America, it was it was Zen Buddhism. So if you knew any, like, hippy-dippy dads who were like uh, like my dad, who was got super into Buddhism, he was always specifically into Zen uh, Buddhism. What and is that, the that sound was, that got of one hand in, clapping? Exactly. A, a famous Buddhist cone. Um, which it should be noted how uh, Miyazaki views Zen Buddhism uh, in because its main uh, representative in the the main Buddhist representative in the movie is the fucking cutthroat mercenary <laughs> shithead monk uh, Jibo <laughs> Jiko Jigo yeah. Uh, as voiced by Billy Bob, Bob Thornton, yeah, yeah, English version. Uh, near the end of this period, the Europeans were first arriving, and that, along with a strengthened relationship with China, led to a lot of imports, including firearms and cannons, glassware, clocks, and tobacco, among, among many other items. Again, this idea that this was the time period in which industrialization was be- becoming a thing in Japan, right? And not even industrialization, just like, just. Culture, just like agriculture. Oh, yeah, yeah. And by the way, Japan was like incredibly closed off to foreigners for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like just the idea of humanity as a, as a unified like society. You know, like, yeah. We're not getting into the steam engine. We're not getting into manufacturing. Right. It's just iron. Just just melting rocks into slightly harder things. Yeah, is the technology that's ruining the earth in this movie right 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 can you just imagine the european version where it's just ye old blacksmith being like oh i I hate the forest i i'm gonna make me a goddamn frying pan no no humble blacksmith i implore you please leave the forest alone oi crikey 
Can you just grab people randomly and implore them to leave the forest alone and, and we'll all film it? <laughs> please, please, subway dancer, I, I implore you, leave this car. Leave this car and let the people listen to their podcasts in peace. If our, if any of our listeners want to, I don't know, film themselves stopping a random person on the street and imploring them to leave the forest alone and want to send it in to us, we will gladly post it on all of our social media. For Wizard a of the new Bruiser. meme is striking TikTok, as the teens are calling it. Mononoke. <laughs> <laughs> Please make Mononoke a good thing. Um, so animation. Please, history teacher, I implore you, do not assign homework for this week. <laughs> I have a very busy schedule and I'm out of jewel pods. <laughs> Uh, so animation production begins in July of 1995 with Miyazaki personally overseeing. This is insane, by the way. Uh, so listen to this one. Miyazaki personally oversaw all 144,000 cells of film. Oversaw, and it, oversaw. It means- and, is, but, and is said to have redrawn parts of 80,000 of said cells. No, no, that's okay. Nobody re- redraws 80,000 cells. That's what the fucking thing says. No, it's, there. okay, there's 80,000 cells of keyframe animation of like individual pencil drawings by uh, Miyazaki's staff. By you his... said he's sad. <laughs> Maybe this is why. Uh, he is very tough. He will like, you know, basically you're handed a stack of pencil drawings and uh, Miyazaki just flips over them. There's a, there's a very, very, very in-depth documentary of the making of Princess Mononoke mm-hmm. that was taken down from YouTube years ago yes, and I had to was. hunt it down yeah. on like 800 individual, like, Literally, one part would be on Daily Motion. Right. Another part would be on a janky Chinese site. Another part would be on a nut. Like Super it was pain in the insane ass. to hunt down. Yeah, but you see the process, and uh, you know Miyazaki uh, like flips through the pages that he was handed. Like, kind of just says like, "Oh, the line of action in this one should look more like this," and just like jots some pencil scribbles in, and is like, "Okay, get it back to me later." Basically, he didn't do everything, but everything that happened, he at least checked. Like uh, uh, the the colors. Literally every object that is painted on a cell uh, was done by was uh, oversaw by him and Michio Yasuda, who was the uh, head of uh, color design for the movie, who had been with him since Toei. And every every little prop, every, like what color the little gold nugget is, what color the wash basins are, mm-hmm. what color every wall, every tree should be. He, you know, they're going through color swatches and he'll have notes and be like, oh, that tree trunk should be a different shade. Right. Like, it's an insane amount of granular control. And, and it's, by the way, this is mostly all hand drawn. There was only a little computer animation involved, and that was even just integrated in the hand drawing, uh, blended together. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, it was just supporting what had already been drawn on the cells. And you can tell there's, um, there's like a very specific thing that, like, bef- after digital. Uh, animation kind of took over, doesn't exist anymore, but like the figures kind of judder, like just ever so slightly from frame to frame because these cells are being hand placed in front of a camera and like individually photographed. Like it's amazing how yeah. analog this movie is. Uh, it had a budget of uh, around 2.5 billion yen, which translates to about $23.5 million US um, back in that time. So add inflation. Uh, most of it is colored with traditional paint, only using computers to complete the work in time for the Japanese release date. Miyazaki said, computers are really just an electronic pen or pencil, and I like regular pencils better. Um, also, um, I love this. this uh, okay, so this was, I pulled this from an, a really good interview I found online of Miyazaki, and he's talking about, essentially, you know, Andy Kaufman talked about this in comedy. Um, 
you know, talking about how like finding comedy in the space in between the jokes or how the space in between what's being said can sometimes be so, so much more important to add to the life in the world or whatever it is. For Miyazaki, he really loved to add tiny little moments that maybe didn't have anything to do with driving the plot forward or anything like that. They were more so, um, there just to, to fulfill or, or, or to more further realize a real life on screen, Mm -hmm. right? Um, to, to make you feel like these were actual people. Um, so of this, he said, we have a word for that in Japanese. It's called ma emptiness. It's there intentionally. And then he starts clapping his hands. The time in between my clapping is ma. If you just have nonstop action with no breathing space at all, it's just busyness. But if you take a moment, then the tension building in the film can grow into a wider dimension. If you just have constant tension at 80 degrees all the time, you just get numb. Uh, and he likens that to North American animation where it's just rapid fire. <laughs> ah, kids, look, shit's going on on the screen. Ah, and all of it's driving the plot forward and all of it's just insane and just trying to like grab your attention so wholly. Of this, um, he says, the people who make the movies are scared of silence. So they want to paper and plaster it over. They're worried that the audience will get bored. They might go up and get some popcorn. But just because it's 80% intense all the time doesn't mean the kids are going to bless you with their concentration. What really matters is the underlying emotions that you never let go of those. Mm-hmm. Love that. He is really eloquent in, in interviews, by the way. He says real. I mean, it is, it's it's pretty um, like he I just, mean, he lives he, up to the auteur. Yes, he's brilliant, man. Like this is this is like not just a, you know, this ain't no fluke. You know what I mean? Uh, a thing that uh, a really noteworthy moment in the impossible to find documentary that I spent way too. I'm sure my computer got a million viruses <laughs> from shady streaming sites just trying to find part 14 of 17 uh, was uh, one of the younger animators. Uh, hands him uh, cuts, what they call, you know, pencil drawings to showcase the keyframes of animation. And he comes over personally to give him criticism because uh, it was showcasing a character who was in pain. And uh, Miyazaki was like, nobody just experiences pain. Ah, People either try and cover it up or they try and like overplay it or they try and like muscle through it or they try and like look for help but like nobody just like nobody bangs their hand and goes like owie you know what i mean like people like so and he was trying to implore this guy like you have to redo it because this movie is about real people and real people have more than one thing going on at a time Yes, and, and and you get such a sense of that through every millisecond of this film. So many, so much character is told through expressions in this movie. Yes, and what and and also what he mean. And by the way, the ma thing, it's still maybe it's like an action might be happening on the screen, but the action is just a simple living action. It's them noticing something on the ground, maybe, or just taking a moment to like soak in what's going on, you know. But they're never like just doing. It's not. It's not necessarily about doing nothing, but it's about be, doing subtle. And it's about doing like maybe maybe this won't move the plot forward anyway or be some part of that big action sequence, but it's gonna make the viewer just again like he mentioned be more in touch with the emotion happening in 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 this character because they're doing something so human on the screen. I noticed that a lot in well obviously because it's the part of the movie with the most people in it, mm-hmm. uh, but the Iron Town scenes. 
Uh, and anytime there's like a big crowd, like people will be running for something or yeah. people will be chasing or running away. And like you'll notice like, oh, one guy in the back like loses his footing and like has to catch himself yes. and like regain. Yeah, himself. stuff like the or perfect pe- example. Yeah, uh, there's uh, a shot of like the some of the, the volunteer soldiers like, like being told to like go out and f- uh, find uh, San. And one guy is just like turning around because he doesn't know like where to run and it's so good and they don't make a big deal of it yeah and that's the thing i think also what animation was struggling with back in those times especially were these far too two-dimensional uh type like which works really well in the context of looney tunes when you're trying to tell this in a human emotional story that has all these fascinating things to say you just can't you can't just get away with what you were just saying like just just <laughs> feeling pain um, by the way, he also he uh, he had two. They had two titles in mind. The other one was Legend of Ashitaka, but they ended up going with Princess Mononoke. Apparently, Miyazaki though preferred that title. So, if you want to be a real uber nerd, uh, you can go around referring to it as the Legend of Ashitaka now in uh, honor of Miyazaki. That's nobody does that. Please nobody do that. does that. You, if you would please send me a video of you stopping a homeless man on the street <laughs> to just scream the Legend of Ashitaka, I would appreciate it. I'm a I'm a you know what? I'm, a, I'm not going to give the full-throated uh, <laughs> confirmation on that. I'm going to say probably maybe think about not doing that. I'm just going to say I've questioned many life decisions I've made, and that is definitely one of them I'm immediately questioning, asking for someone to do that. I actually really like the title uh, Princess Mononoke or, you know, Mononoke Hime, whatever it's uh-huh. called. I like it too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it has, like, this very profound, like, uh, you know, uh, 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 mysterious kind of power behind it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Mononoke means like a, a spirit or a monster, uh, specifically kind of the idea of a Shinto spirit, like a, a spirit that embodies an object or place. Uh, and the only person who really uses the name um, Princess Mononoke is Lady Yaboshi, and she's doing it to insult San. Yeah. She says it mockingly, being like, who are you, the fucking princess of monsters? Like, no, you're some <laughs> girl, you ding dong. <laughs> And that's like kind of an interesting. That's I'm not making a grand point. Just hey, the movie that did a bunch of cool shit also did this cool thing. <laughs> so let's get a little let 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 us actually now dive into some deeper stuff. I have some phenomenal quotes from Miyazaki. I have some really f- just points that were fascinating to me. You know, I never thought too hard about this film back when I saw it back in the day. Uh, I just remember being frankly surprised at it when I watched it because I thought I was going to be seeing I think I was just so used to Akira Ghost in the Shell I thought I was going to be sitting down and watching some crazy edgy bloodbath cool cool kid movie and it it is very violent but still like the first thing yeah it's amazing how quickly this movie snaps you into the fact like this is not like my neighbor Totoro. Yeah. This is not. It is a, an adult. It is at way edgier than like four you know. minutes in. We're getting arms like blasted. Yeah, off of yeah, people. definitely for sure. Not to say it wasn't devoid of that, and I, d- I definitely think that helped it become very popular in North America. But and still, in Japan. But still, um, there, there was a softness to it I was surprised by. But um, Miyazaki says uh, this about the theme of the humans versus the gods. Um, There cannot be a happy ending to the fight between the raging gods and humans. However, even in the middle of hatred and killings, there are things worth living for. A wonderful meeting or a beautiful thing can exist. We depict hatred, but it is to depict that there are more important things. We depict a curse to depict the joy of liberation. What I really try to achieve is to question if human beings will ever be able to conquer hatred. And in terms of conquering, I don't think I actually won. But also, I feel like I didn't lose either um 
so another another big part uh, of the movie is disease. Um, we get that with the lepers in the uh, Iron Town. Of course, he his curse on his arm almost feels disease like. I, I mean, it is the uh, it's it's there's kind of an irony to that plot point where uh, we see this idyllic town. We see this like perfectly inharmonious. A uh, place where you know the handsome prince rides his magic elk and everything's like kind of dandy and they respect their elders. And the first thing we know about this culture is, oh, you're cursed. Get the fuck out of here. We're not going to bend the rules for you. We're not going to like do anything about it. Our traditions are our traditions. You have to leave forever. You are you are banished. And he goes to Iron Town, where that's where his home should be. Right. The lepers were also cast out due to a disease. And there they're given humanity and given person. He was like, even in the ideal uh, nature society, he was unpersoned due to something out of his control. And Irontown like gives people their humanity back. Yeah, he said he was inspired to portray people living with leprosy after, I think, walking away with the negative impact of visiting the Tama Zinshoen Sanatorium near his home in Tokyo, which was a sanitarium for leprosy or ex-leprosy patients, of which he said um, uh, that people living with leprosy were said to be an incurable disease caused by bad karma. And I think that he wanted to humanize these people and and exactly as you say and treat them with more respect than they were given. I mean, it's literally in the Bible that if you have leprosy, you're gone. And like, that's why can't. it's both lepers and prostitutes is another big um, clientele of Iron Town. And I think also trying to give show, treat them with respect. These sorts of types of people that are greatly looked down on in society generally, I think he was trying to elevate um, with with his portrayal in Irontown. And it and it doesn't even have to be pr- I, it, they say prostitutes and brothels, but like the idea of who ends up becoming a prostitute, it's the single women who can't survive on their own. Yeah. Again, another thing in a in a taking control, like trying to get some control over their life, and yeah. you know, just in another class of people that in, in more traditional primitive societies would have just been outright just doomed. Right, right. Um, so, and of course, uh, the environment plays a massive role, and the need to preserve nature while negotiating that with humankind's growth and development. And uh, again, and this not being just a good versus evil struggle. Miyazaki said, "When you talk about plants or an ecological system or forest, things are very easy if you decide that bad people ruined it. But that's not what humans have been doing. It's not bad people who are destroying forests." Hard-working people have been doing it. And these, you know, it's like it's the farmer out there every day busting his ass to destroy the environment, you know? But, but you know, they don't consider what they're doing evil, you know? They, they, they're fighting for their family's survival, and that's a lot. That's, that's the struggle he's really getting at. Um, uh, Minnie Driver, actually, who played, uh, did the voice for Lady Iboshi, which I felt like she did a pretty good job. Great job. Uh, uh, I think of the cast, she's probably the strongest. Her and Claire Danes... Uh, Claire Danes uh, wasn't too bad. I either. thought Claire Danes was like a little too like '90s like yeah. girl. Yeah, yeah. But then I, I on the torrented version of the movie that I got because <laughs> you can't get it legally. Uh, yeah. By the way, uh, I hope we inspire a bunch of people to go watch the movie. Good luck finding it <laughs> online, fucking anywhere. I'm already my computer's already dead from the shady streaming sites to get the documentary. The literally virus- Jake comes home to it, the computer and it's just going kill me. <laughs> Kill me! You did too many crimes. <laughs> now I'm dying. <laughs> um, the uh, you wouldn't download a computer, would you? 
but I switched to the Japanese dialogue on the file and uh, Sans voice also is like just a, a perky like Japanese like anime voice. Yeah. Anime girl voice. Okay. So it, it actually kind of fits. It matched. Uh, uh, well, anyways, Mini Driver said about all of this theme uh, and this more complex issue of humanity versus the environment. It's one of the most remarkable things about the film. Miyazaki gives a complete argument for both sides of the battle between technological achievement and our spiritual roots in the forest. He shows that good and evil, violence and peace exist in us all. It's about all about how you harmonize it all. Uh, and I completely agree. Uh, I think she actually summed it up like almost better than Miyazaki did with that quote. It's a, that really is, I feel, what is at the core of this film. Uh, uh, San protects the forest, but kills innocents. Wait, wait, Sin or San? San. San. Yeah. Uh, uh, three, because each Nissan, and she's the third daughter of the of the of the wolf god. So you've got San protecting the forest but killing innocents, but you also have Iboshi destroying the forest but in order to protect her village and have it thrive. So these these are just the the basic conflicts. So nobody's necessarily wrong here per se depending on what uh direction you're coming in on this from and for our protagonist, uh he's coming in right in the middle of it and that's that's the whole point. Lastly, the theme of individuality versus societal conformity is a huge Huge part. So, of course, San represents the individuality uh, aspect, and Iboshi represents the social societal conformity aspect. She's kind of telling, you know, everyone's really her society under her represents that. You know what I mean? That they're all they're all sort of falling in line under um, under her uh, rule and and in you know in yeah, Irontown. I don't know if I buy that. Yeah. I mean, there's if we're talking conformity, there's the whole. The third act introduces like the samurai class and the warlords and the mm. and all that, which is like literally the enemy of both the forest and Iron Town because mm. they're like true nationalized power, military like Miyazaki makes it clear like So you're saying maybe they represent the societal yeah. conformity. I could see that, yeah. Yeah, because it's about like literally bringing in this this renegade uh, community under the heel uh for their resources, uh that's like even more uh, like Lady Eboshi wants to protect her thing. Uh, Jigo is trying to kill the forest god just to like get gold, and so the emperor can live forever. Like it's 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 more selfish. It's more controlling. So now I want to talk about the music real quick before we move into the uh-huh. the release and the U.S. release and how complicated that got with a wonderful cameo from one Neil Gaiman happening uh, during that portion. We'll get there, though. Uh, but first, the beautiful score was composed and performed by Joe Hisaishi. Who was composed? Who has composed almost all of Miyazaki's productions? He started off learning violin at the age of four, and is said to have Japanese people. I just can't keep up, man. You know what I mean? They're just fucking on this shit in a way. Like I'm not. Ha- the, for, I was fucking sucking my thumb at age four. Here's the thing: <laughs> is we're not learning violin. No, no, no. This is this is something I've come to terms with. There's like a lot of romanticization that goes on, especially when all you consume is like anime and like cool Japanese shit. Where like, yeah, there's 
prodigies and like yeah, overachievers in America that's too. True, that's we just true. see and we just recognize him. And they at, all work in the video game industry, <laughs> uh, killing themselves like, one hour at a time in a in a fucking programming. Bank. There are slackers. There are drunks. There are shitheads. There are ignorant weirdos. There sure. are bumpkins. There are yokels. There are right. assholes. There are internet trolls. There is a universe of shitty, lazy Japanese people, and they just don't have award-winning cartoons for us to learn about. And, uh, well, anyways, this this guy, he is said to have seen 300 movies uh, in the movie theater over four years in his early life. Uh, that obviously had a huge inspiration for him. He majored in music composition in college, and his first job was composing music for an anime series called Gyatorutsu. And in 1983, he was recommended to Miyazaki for Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and they became fast friends. He's known for his gentle, faintly melancholic tone, which became a uh, Ghibli classic. He was su- for Nausicaa. He was supposed to just do like a kind of scratch track, kind of a preview thing to kind of help the production move along, and like basically. Doing the trailer music. Yeah. And Miyazaki was so amped up by it. Nice. And like he listened to it all the time when producing the original Nausicaa that he like was like, no, this is what my movie fucking sounds like. Yeah. And he brought him in to awesome. be the sound of Ghibli. That's awesome. So uh the film is released in Japan in July of nineteen ninety seven. It does very well, which leads it to being a successful art house film in English. I'm so, when you countries. say it does very well, what you mean to say is it's literally the most successful movie <laughs> yes. in the history of Japanese cinema. Yes. Uh the fact that it earns like something like a couple hundred million dollars uh is even more like amazing when you realize that A, it's in nineteen nineties dollars, and B the nation of Japan has one tenth of the yeah. movie theater screens yeah. that America does. Totally, so Japan is not big. Yeah, like I forget that sometimes. Like Japan, I, I think Japan's like half the world to me because of how much art I consume from that one place. But it is actually quite small. <laughs> uh, it's 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 bigger and smaller than you think. It's very weird. Um, <laughs> the and more importantly, it just has more of a, it. Just has a bigger home home market. Yeah, uh, like renting and direct to video stuff was very popular in Japan like years before America. So like just the, the cinema was never really wasn't as powerful as a force. Anyway, um, it's huge. It, it's massive waves in Japan. It's so massive, obviously that it spreads out to, so you have to imagine that people were coming out to see this movie over and over and over again in sold out crowds in packed yeah. theaters. Like it's not like seeing Endgame three weeks afterwards and you get like your own little road to yourself. Right. People, this was a phenomenon a, because it was uh Ghibli had, ex- had established itself as, this uh, monolith, this like this national treasure, and B, the movie had uh, lots of like positive values and points out like yeah, the old ways were good. So all the old people are like yeah, that's right. <laughs> Fucking kids with their skateboards. I implore you to stop messing with the forest and the young kids liked it because it was a cartoon and the older kids liked it because our main hero fucking explodes faces <laughs> with his demon arm. <laughs> Disney sees this and they and ends up getting the rights for a North American release in order to do so through its independent subsidiary Miramax Film. There's a guy named David Alpert who was brought on is this uh, this English speaking guy to be the head of Ghibli's overseas thing. So and it was his like job in life to get American companies excited for Mononoke. I think I told this story on a previous episode, but rumor has it that complete notorious shithead Harvey Weinstein, the ex-chairman of Miramax Films, after he did all that awful shit, 
uh, demanded edits for the film before a North American release, to which Miyazaki responded by sending him a katana with a message that read, no cuts. Love that story. Love that story. Now, that's where Neil Gaiman comes in. He is brought in to rework the script, to add context, to clarify some elements of for, of Japanese culture now, for better understanding while also making the word this was the craziest part making the words match the mouth movements in the English dub that, that's the most insane part to me uh, and Neil Gaiman was like a popular comic book writer at the time but he's not like the legendary goth god of sensitive boys that we know him as right. today uh, you know how he got the recommendation to get this gig how famous gigantic tub of shit uh, Harvey Weinstein <laughs> Uh, was recommended, uh, uh, Gaiman, by a little man named uh, Quentin Tarantino. Ah. Who was who yes. had a lot of clout in Miramax yes, at that time. Yes, for sure. Uh, now, this is what's interesting. You know what's Basically, bad? Quentin Tarantino dropped the N-bomb 15 yeah. times. It was like, oh, you want and a whimsy then- guy? I know a whimsy guy. <laughs> Um, th- you know, th- I, this actually just hit me as symbolic of what this movie is all about. Thus begins a struggle between Miramax, who wanted it more westernized, while uh, Ghibli wanted the Japanese culture to really be hugely prominent in the film uh, on their side. So, of course, you end up with this struggle that that Neil Gaiman is uh, ashitaka into being directly now in the middle of. Now, you say Ashitaka, but what if his name was Randy? <laughs> Randy of the forest. So, Gaiman, in order to solve... Are we, are we married to Princess Mononoke? What about Princess Wolfie Face? Princess Badass, yeah. Uh, so, he, in order to, like, deal with this conflict the, the best way he could, he's just like, fuck it. He wrote two different versions, <laughs> gave them to each of them, and was just like, you guys sort this out, because I'm I can't get involved here. Uh, he was dropped from the project shortly after. They gave it to... Oh, weird. They weren't yeah, open to that idea they weren't of into just that. not being helpful and fucking everyone over. So they gave it to some other fucking moron that decided he would literally write a completely new script. Probably, you know, because this happens a lot in Hollywood with, like, arbitration for writing. He probably was doing this to get more money no, there's, um, um, and a better credit there's, um, by fully rewriting it. There's the cultural thing, and then there was the issue, which... Uh, Definitely affects what you're noticing in the voice acting in the original English dub, where they desperately needed it to match the mouth. Yes. Yeah. So they were down to like cutting syllables line by and line. And that's why to I feel like out. Billy Bob Thornton, when I mentioned how rapid his sometimes his talking is at times, I think that is a victim to that issue. Actually, they were just like quick cut, you know, because just different cultures speak at different paces yeah. you know and 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 to match the pace of the japanese language is like i you know it sounds weird it's funny you say that cuz there's a very short behind the scenes like featurette uh that for some reason is on youtube and the voice director for the english cast was like yeah it was really difficult getting people to you know match the performance and the tone and the attitude uh, and then to get the timing down, Jack Fletcher, by the way, is yeah. The, so the, Jack Fletcher dub, is dub director, and was like the only guy who really nailed it was Billy Bob Thornton because he's funny. a drummer and he understood just like what are my beats? Okay, yeah. I'll hit those beats. Yeah, yeah. For, I mean, he gets all those words in there. It just sounds <laughs> a little bizarre because it's just so rapid fire. Um, I guess this is why you don't argue with fools. But anyways, that rewritten version was so bad that they brought Gaiman back 
to work directly with Miyazaki, but still, some of their changes for the dub were not accepted, so the English version apparently represents about 85% of Miyazaki's intention. So um, it's uh, little things like uh, when Lady Eboshi is in the we- in the gun workshop and she says, we'll send some wine in later for you. Obviously, that was sake. That was sake. He, yeah, Gaiman himself said, we got to keep Samurai, we lost sake, sake became wine, we lost Japan, interestingly enough, and we even lost China at one point in the original version they talk about guns that come from China uh even the even technically the guns in the movie are like these arquebusers or you know technically they're not rifles there's some like proto firearm uh that you know a gun nerd wouldn't call guns but they were like just call them rifles this is the most interesting uh localization whoopsie doodle uh, you know that girl who like comes to Ashitaka and he gives him like the little dag crystal dagger, uh-huh. and she's like, "This is so you can remember me, your sister." Uh, that's supposed to be his fiance, his his arranged betrothed. Yes, yes, in they the are Japanese version, purported lovers, but she's saying brother in the sense of like brother of a tribe. Right. It's it's like, a it's a tribal society, yeah. so you call female uh, members of your tribe sister, and you call male members brother. And, like, that just, again, changes the whole context of what that scene is supposed to be. So can you explain why, after doing all of that work to create this English version, Miramax releases the film in theaters with little to no advertising and a limited run, which meant it didn't do well at all in the box office? Do you know why? I didn't really get a good explanation. I just... Because people... Because there's this... You know, this is pre-Pokemon. Like, does Weinstein just suck that much? I, no, I'm <laughs> sure... I'm sure Weinstein was too busy, like, trying to commit sex crimes. Right, of course. And doing cocaine. Because he's a piece of shit. I'm, I'm sure Johnny Marketing down at the fucking PR house just was like, nah, Japanese shit, weird. Like, right. we'll make it an art house thing. We'll, like, we'll make it prestige, uh, okay. baby. Okay, yeah. And considering that previous to that, the most uh, prominent... Like, there was never, besides, like, stuff that people didn't realize were anime or, uh, you know, the most successful animes were, like, edgy, like, adult, grown-up anime. So they tried to go the art house direction. They tried to go the prestige direction, even though in Japan this was a mass market film. And in a way, and it is. It is. It is a people pleaser. Well, the, it fared a, a lot better worldwide, and in 2001, it actually ends up becoming the top-selling anime in the U.S., oddly enough. It was the highest, like you said, it was the highest-grossing Japanese film in 1997 until a few months later because Titanic knocked it off. Yeah, well. But it is the highest-grossing film in Japan. Uh, was, was the, yeah, <laughs> whatever. Okay, we're almost there. Uh, Holden, I implore you to finish the podcast episode. (laughs) Do not surrender to hatred. Please. I just jump across the desk (laughs) and start strangling you. Bart Simpson, Hobart style. Um, Okay, Jake, all I have is one very long quote from Miyazaki that I feel like beautifully sums everything up and ends everything in this podcast perfectly and wonderfully. Do you have anything else you want to share before I drop this delicious poll quote on our audience? Uh, I just think that uh, the movie is a singularly amazing work. I don't know if we did a good job selling you on it besides just repeating how much we love it. But uh, and everything from the just raw beauty of the uh, old school animation, the complexity of the characters, the kind of murkiness and and uh, inch and the complications of the plot that relate to our lives just as much as they ever did. Uh, the fact that our hero is still this like, warrior demon armed like badass but still is a pacifist at heart person this it's very unique even for today's standards for a movie with this much action and war in it to have that type of a protagonist 
it's uh it's like uh one of those guys who's like getting into a fight at a bar but is like too noble about it be like listen brother i do not we do we listen Come on, I man will, don't make me definitely use I will, what, <laughs> what will definitely destroy your face if you keep escalating this i love those videos by the way on uh <laughs> on youtube and stuff like bully beatdown videos yeah. oh god i i watch them all the time but i do love that those dudes in those videos that are like Dude, I'm going to crush you. Please stop just drunkenly screaming at me in front of my child. I'm about to fuck you up. So please stop your hammer. Please. Okay. God damn. All right. Fine. Hold on a second. Let me just pop. <laughs> it's always so good. Um, anyways, can I drop this quote now? Drop it. This is from Miyazaki himself. I think that in the essence of human civilization, we have the desire to become rich without limit by taking the lives of other creatures. The place where pure water is running in the depth of the forest in the deep mountains where no human has ever set foot, Japanese had long held such a place in their heart. There lived big snakes you don't see in a village or something scary. We believe so until a certain time. I still have a feeling that there is such a holy place with no humans in the deep mountains, the source where many things are born. I think the Japanese gardens definitely try to create a holy, pure world. Purity was the most important thing for Japanese. We have lost it. I'm not interested in Japan as a state, but I feel that we have lost our core as the people who live in this island nation. I think that it was the most important route for the people who have been living on this island. And it leads to the idea that the world is not just for humans, but for all life, and humans are allowed to live in a corner of the world. It's not like we can coexist with nature as long as we live humbly and we destroy it because we become greedy. When we recognize that even living humbly destroys nature, we don't know what to do. And I think that unless we put ourselves in the place where we don't know what to do and start from there, we cannot think about environmental issues or issues concerning nature. Guy's smart. Guy is really smart. Um, I love doing this episode. I love this movie. I hope you do too or have plans to watch it sometime this week. Good luck finding it. Maybe order the Blu-ray online or destroy your computer over it. Uh, either way, thank you so much for listening. Um, you can, uh, if you want to support us further, uh, find us on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We will be doing, uh, we do weekly episodes of bonus content and we're having a blast. And at this point, I think listeners are starting to realize we've done enough and <laughs> now that there's actually quite a bit of uh, backlog you can go explore um, and we will keep doing that also if you want to follow me further twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho Jake follow me on the twitter at best Jake young and if you're feeling real sassy check out uh, dropout.tv where my show cartoon hell airs weekly hell yeah take care everybody and always remember never stop bruising and always be whizzing woo This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.